Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Ukrainian forces stage an attempt to seize the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Also, Scott Ritter has written articles discussing the Ukrainian Kill List website. Joining us now to discuss these and more, former UN weapons inspector and author, Scott Ritter. Scott, welcome back to the Critical Hour. Well, thanks for having me. In uh, ConsortiumNews.com, a great website, Scott Ritter writes, The odious legacy of Stepan Bandera drives the suppression of those who dare challenge the narrative of the Russian-Ukrainian conflict promulgated by the Ukrainian government, its Western allies, and a compliant mainstream media. Scott Ritter, your thoughts? Well, I mean, I, we, we've discussed before the, um, the blacklist that uh, had been promulgated by a U.S.-funded Ukrainian entity known as the... Um, Center for Countering Disinformation. And I think um, in large part because of the discussion we've had, things I've written, and the reaction has gotten from people like Diane Sayre, a uh, LaRouche candidate for a Senate here in New York uh, and, and, you know, and elsewhere, um, I, I think the U.S. government wised up to the fact that uh, this was not the appropriate use of U.S. taxpayer money. While they wouldn't admit it, um, that list came down was removed from the internet, um, which is a good thing, except that the people, some of the people that were on that list found their names put on an, uh, uh, another list. This is a more nefarious list. You know, we, when we talked about the, uh, the blacklist, I talked about the chilling impact is, uh, of being labeled a Russian propagandist has on one's career. But I also talked about how, when this, this list was sold to the public, um, the people on it were described as information terrorists who deserve to be arrested and prosecuted as war criminals. Um, we, and I said this this leads to the, to the potential of political violence, uh, meaning that if you label somebody an information terrorist and a, a war criminal, um, and you truly believe in the cause that these information terrorists and war criminals are opposing, um, would not not be a patriotic duty. Uh, to go out and eliminate that person. Um, and we went from theory to reality in, in one fell swoop. There's a website known as uh, Miro Tvoritz. It's um, the, 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 the peace seekers. Uh, and it's, it's, it's been around since 2014. It's put together by the right wing, the Nazis, the bad guys in Ukraine. And it's a kill list. It's literally a kill list uh, the people whose names are put on this list are targeted for death. And numerous Ukrainian journalists have been killed. Um, Daria Dugina, the daughter of Alexander Dugina, the Russian philosopher, uh, allegedly Putin's uh, brain, even though he's not, um, she was murdered. Uh, she was on this list, and they symbolically put a red line through and said liquidated. Uh, so this isn't theory anymore. This is a death list a hit list. People on this list are targeted for assassination. And if you're on that list, you better assume that you're targeted for assassination. I'm number 12 on the list. Um, now, you know, I don't live my life in fear, but, you know, I'm, I, 
I live in the United States of America. One would say that we're somewhat insulated from the events of Ukraine. You know, I, I, when I was a U.N. weapons inspector, I was, I was targeted by the Russian mafia for death. They put out a hit on me because I broke up a smuggling ring that was sending missile parts to I, Iraq through Palestine. Um, but I was also told by people linked with the Russian security services that, um, that the, 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 the mafia would never come to the United States to get me. That was basically only if I ever went to Russia that they would get me. Um, yay. Uh, but the <laughs> point is, one would think, okay, you, you know, maybe that's the same situation. These Ukrainian Nazis, these murderers, these thugs, these cowards, um, you know, promulgate this list, but, you know, they're not going to come to the United States. Oh, what if they're already in the United States? And that's the other thing this article talks about. You know, just a few miles down the road is a place called Ellenville, a sleepy little New York town. But in there is a camp run by a, a you know, a, a Ukrainian youth group. Um, that, that has its origins in the organization of Ukrainian nationalism, B. That means Bandera, B for Bandera, B for Butcher. They have a, a, a hero's a monument there uh, where they have Stepan Bandera's statue, along with the statue of other uh, murderous thugs, Ukrainian nationalists loyal to Nazis who slaughtered tens of thousands of Jews, hundreds of thousands of Poles, hundreds of thousands of Russians. They're there, and every summer, they have a camp where they bring in these Ukrainian-Americans, dress them up in the same damn brown uniforms that the Nazis wore, and they parade them around, teaching them the wonderful world of Ukrainian nationalism. They fly the flag of the Bandera movement, the red over black, the blood over soil. They worship this man, uh, and they're right here in the United States. And, you know, this is problematic. You know, if, if we had Al-Qaeda uh, promulgate a hit list to kill Americans uh, or to kill people opposed to Al-Qaeda, and they were actually doing it, people on that list were dying, we call that an act of terrorism. And Al-Qaeda would be a terrorist entity. And then if we had Al-Qaeda supporters here in the United States who were writing things in support, raising money in support, they would be arrested for, you know, facilitating terrorism, for collaborating with terrorism, for promoting terrorism. Well, we have terrorists here in America right now. Every single member of the OUN-related organizations are terrorists because they endorse the ideology that is behind the acts of political murder, murder that has literally targeted people for death and has Americans on the list. This is problematic. You know, the FBI, you can go kick down the door of Mar-a-Lago all you want. But the real threat is right here in New York. The real threat is this Bandera-affiliated movement that exists, that worships this man, puts his statue up, holds camps, trains people in the hateful ideology of Banderism. We shut down ISIS camps. We arrest people for wanting to travel overseas to fight on behalf of ISIS. And yet we allow the Bandera movement to be alive and well and living, not just living, but thriving here in the United States at a time when the Bandera movement in Ukraine is targeting Americans for death. I got a problem with that. And you write also that you have a problem, you say first and foremost, that the salaries of the Ukrainians who compiled the list appeared to be paid by the U.S. taxpayer using funds appropriated by Congress. 
The idea of Congress passing a law which empowered the Ukrainian government to do something, suppress the First Amendment, guarantees a free speech and free press, that Congress was constitutionally prohibited from doing, and that angers you. And I think that also should be read in the context of President Biden is supposed to deliver a speech tonight from Philadelphia where he talks about the threats that are facing democracy. And if he wants to come before the American people and talk about the threats that are facing democracy, I would think U.S. taxpayer dollars funding these types of organizations would be a threat to democracy as well. 100 percent. But the Biden administration is going to be as silent as Congress has been on this. You know, they, they can't admit that they are wrong on the issue of Ukraine. Too much political capital has uh, gone in. I mean, even if they were to be introspective and reflective for a moment and say, oh, my goodness, we got this wrong. We need to stop, change, shift gears, change direction. Um, they couldn't because too much political capital has been invested down this road. So they're, they're in a trap of their own making. Um, you know, it, it's going to come back to bite them. You know who's number one on the Mir Tourette's list? United States Senator Rand Paul. Wow. My God, that is literally, for me as an American, this is a causes belli. You put a serving American senator on an assassination list? I got B-2 bombers uh, with bombs on it with your name stenciled on the side, buddy. I'm taking you out. That's what any American would want. Any American would want this. The president should want it, regardless of what party he serves in. Anybody would want this because you don't do that. Nobody does that. You don't single out an American senator for assassination for any reason, especially not for using his you know, protected rights of free speech, but more importantly, as an American, uh, to try and stifle his role as a legislator, somebody whose job it is to consider the difficult issues of the day and promote policy options. If you disagree with the policy, you get more votes in the Senate. You don't target him for assassination. But Biden, instead of sending B-2 bombers out to flatten uh, anybody affiliated with Stepan Bandera, uh, are sending the FBI to raid and shut down these uh, centers of hate here in America. He's instead going to promote the notion that the free speech that I exercise, Rand Paul exercise, Tulsi Gabbard exercises, Ray McGovern exercises, uh, it, uh, you know, McGregor and others, uh, this is now constitutes a threat to democracy. Democracy can't withstand uh, apparently the oppressive force of fact-based truth, that if you're not aligning yourselves ideologically with the rhetoric coming out of the government, if you don't make sure that your words match the policy, you are a threat to democracy. Man, our founding fathers would be rolling over in their graves. You know who else would be? Scalia. I'm not a big fan of Scalia, uh, but when he spoke out in defense of an opinion that I despise, Citizens United, uh, he sat there and he gloated. He said, why restrict speech? More speech. The more speech, the better. Speech is good. More speech. We want more speech. We want more speech. Except when you don't want more speech, and then you empower the Ukrainian government to assassinate Americans who dare speak out in opposition to policies they disagree with.
Before we go, Scott, I did want to get your thoughts on the um, the nuclear power plant. The U.N. has said they want a permanent present at Russia-held nuclear site. Moscow saying that they're open to that idea. Um, and um, certainly we, under- we, we hear now that the um, the Ukrainians tried to, you know, make some kind of a attack or storm on the plant, which, have, like the rest of their counteroffensives, weren't wasn't very successful. Your thoughts? We got about three minutes, Scott. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, whatever happens between Russia and the International Atomic Energy Agency is between them. If they have an agreement for the permanent presence of uh, uh, IEA personnel at this plant, uh, that will be set down in agreement. There will be a legal framework, and um, so be it. Um, I'm, I'm bothered by the fact that um, the, the, the head of this de- IEA delegation met with Zelensky, uh, was given assurances of his security. Um, and then on the way to the plant, the Ukrainian government launches a massive commando attack, the purpose of which was to seize control of the plant before the inspectors got there. Um, what's going on here? Something smells. This doesn't smell right. It stinks. It reeks. Um, you know, and it was the IAEA part of this. Were they part of the planning of this? Was the United Nations, who has remained very silent throughout this, also cognizant of the fact that the United Nations organization was being used as a trigger for a covert operation to seize the nuclear power plant? Um, there's, there's, there's some big problems here that um, point to basically the IAEA losing credibility as an impartial implementer of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. To Scott's final piece, getting it wrong on Ukraine, you talk about William Arkin is a prisoner of his sources, a problem that pervades Western reporting on the conflict in Ukraine. Your thoughts, Scott Ritter? Well, we know that NBC News uh, a little while ago um, admitted that, um, or at least reported on uh, the National Security Council admitting that they were declassifying intelligence information and releasing it for public consumption, uh, even though they knew it was false as part of a part, of, a part and parcel of a plan to shape perception. Uh, William Arkin is an experienced military analyst, um, and yet when he writes for Newsweek, uh, in every one of his articles, he, uh, he quotes an unnamed uh, senior defense intelligence official who has requested anonymity because he's not permitted to talk about this subject. In short, Arkin stopped being a journalist, stopped being a thinking analyst, and became purely a stenographer for the intelligence community to dictate to Newsweek what to publish about the war in Iraq, or the war in Ukraine. And everything Arkin has written has been proven wrong. He starts with this one thematic, Russia is losing the war, Russia is losing the war, Russia is losing the war. Don't listen to what you hear, don't believe what you see, Russia is losing the war. Why? Because I was told so by the senior uh, U.S. intelligence official who will remain anonymous, a prisoner of his sources. Um, and we know that the sources deliberately leak information designed to deceive the American public. So guess what, William Arkin? You are a propagandist of the worst sort, but you're an American propagandist. We've been talking with Scott Ritter. He's a former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq and an author. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Columbus, Ohio police shot a man in his bed within a second of opening the door to his room and then yelled, stop resisting as the man lay dying. Joining us to discuss this, we have John Burris, who is a civil rights attorney and friend of the show. John Burris, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Good to be with you. I must tell you, I'm just horrified by this last shooting as I have been for any shooting. This is really outrageous. It reminded me of Fred Hampton. Uh, when Fred Hampton, the Black Panther, was shot and killed in his bed. Uh, in this case, um, this boy never had a chance. He never had a chance. I mean, they stick the dog in. As soon as the dog opens up the door and they look in, within a moment, they shoot and kill him. He didn't have a chance to find out if he had a weapon. He didn't make any charges at him. He didn't do anything. That's a horrible way to go down and, and get shot and killed and, and die at such a young age. So pretty outrageous. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that is most disturbing because there was no effort and willingness to want to preserve this kid's life or to find out if he was in any way harm, harming anyone. He was in his bed. They, had, they didn't see a weapon of any kind. They didn't see him reach for anything. They opened the door, and, and within a second, they shoot him. So um, horrible, horrible fact pattern. Uh, and you kind of wonder, when is this going to end? But if you look at the data, there's no end in sight, and that's the horrible component of this. One of the things that I find very interesting and, and incredibly troubling, and, and if I'm if I'm misinterpreting this, and please correct me, they had a felony warrant. They seem to have found the person in the apartment that they were looking for. They detain one other person in the apartment. So if you find the person you're looking for, then it seems to me some of the tension in the moment should subside. And that if you're trying to clear the apartment, I understand that, but you got the guy you're looking for. So mission accomplished. Absolutely. And, you know, now, obviously they were continuing to search and looking for what else they can. Garland, you would understand this. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they look at a situation, they might find evidence of other types of crimes and, and use them. The, the disturbing component of this, though, is that, and I see this often, you shoot a person and they react to it and you say that person is resisting. Or you beat a person up, you hit them with batons, you're hitting them, you're stun gunning them, whatever you're doing. And then when they react reflectively, you say that's resisting arrest. And that's one of those things we have to fight through all the time, because generally when they're saying resistant arrest, it's really to cover and justify the kind of force that they're using at the time. This is a situation where they've already shot this kid, and he's responding to being shot, and he's moaning, and he's groaning, and they claim that's resistance. They want to put his hands behind his back and all those kind of things that, that really suggest that they really had no real interest uh, in, in the legitimate police um, practices they were designed now that they've shot this kid, and then now they want to, you know, get the scene under control and, and basically justify their conduct. Yeah, and, and, and uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the scene, um, it's reported officers are heard shouting hands and come on out at nearly the precise moment Anderson fires his gun. Lewis, who can be heard moaning in the pain, back, in pain as he lay dying, was then commanded to put your hands behind your back now and stop resisting. And, of course, we've seen multiple videos where a person is lying on the ground um, and four off to, several officers will be beating the individual. And as a matter of almost performa, 
you know, they say, stop resisting, stop. And the person's just laying there sometimes out conscious, unconscious, sometimes in some instances literally dead while the police, as a matter of performance, say stop resisting. And, and, I, and I think that's what's truly troubling here. Well, the, the classic case that starts all this bring back the most memories from the case I was involved in was the Rodney King case. They're hitting him and beating him, and they keep saying, stop resisting, stop resisting, as if he was the one, and he was reacting to being hit every, you know, multiple, multiple times. So it's not an uncommon approach. It's somewhat like a training that, you know, the person doesn't do exactly what you say or they react. You say he's resisting because that then brings forth another charge. One of the things I'm always looking for to see, what is the underlying case here when you say that a person is resisting arrest? What do they do to justify that? Here, what is the basis for saying the boy was a resisting? In fact, when you had shot him, he was unarmed. He was on his bed. He's basically sitting there, and you open the door and you shoot him. He, he may not even know where he, what was going on at the time. And that's the, uh, the real tragedy of it, that he, he probably wasn't even well aware of what was taking place at the time. The response by the Columbus police chief, Elaine Bryant, she says, every day officers are put in compromising, potentially life-threatening situations in which we are required to make split-second decisions. As chief, it's my job to hold my officers accountable, but it's also my job to support them. And she says this while three people in the police in Columbus have shot three people in the last eight days. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that the, this is the part that makes it so difficult to hold officers accountable. When the chief of the department says, I have to support my officers, it's almost like no matter what, because I got the union on my back, I have other community on my back, I have, and the community that I'm concerned about. I, they want to know that I'm supporting the police. And so that's the, this is part that makes it so difficult to, to hold officers accountable and reform them when a police chief himself or herself takes the position that, regardless, I have to support my officers. And she does that without even knowing all the facts. That's the part that's most troubling uh, to me. And, and so some of those shootings that I saw, it looked like a person may have had a gun. Uh, the question, what do they do with that gun? The mere presence of a gun in and of itself does not. Uh, justify shooting someone. On the other hand, if you do something with that gun to cause the officer to think their life is in danger, and Garland, you will know you have to exercise self-defense. But routine traffic stops result in people getting shot. To me, that's, uh, there's something wrong with that picture. And so, uh, but on the other hand, you have to have some kind of willingness to objectively evaluate the, the conduct. Because at the end of the day, it's still about an objectively reasonable police officer. A police officer cannot decide for themselves that I think I believe my life is in danger when a reasonable police officer might not have felt that. But it's still up to the police chief to hold them accountable because if they take the position that an officer says that my life is in danger and they do not do any kind of critical analysis of it, then that officer is going to feel uh, justified uh, and the department and other officers will think that it was justified and the chief has their back. And that causes the real problem why we can't hold officers accountable when the chief has your back no matter what. Well, the other thing here is the chief is just plain wrong. And let me let me explain what I mean. The chief says you have to make a split second decision. No. If I come upon a person and this person's in the bed at night, if I don't see clearly identify a gun, a weapon of some type, I don't have to make a split second decision. The fact of the matter is the video shows the guy opened the door 
And before he, within less than a second, before the officer had time to identify if there was a weapon, they shot. So the fact of the matter is, the this police chief is telling people to make a split-second decision when they don't have to make a split-second decision. And that's one of the things that creates this kind of environment. John Burris, your thoughts? Yeah, you're absolutely right about uh, the, the term split-second decision. is kind of used as a catch-all, like resisting arrest and things of that nature, because all decisions are not split-second decisions. Some of that is a function of the tactics that were employed. And in, the, in, good, in a case like this, they had a dog. They had opened up the door. All they had to do was stand and look and stand by the door. He had in a position of cover. And he, and before, he, but he broke that cover by basically shooting inside without even finding out whether the young man had a weapon or not. So that is an argument that is made almost in every case. It comes out of a case that's uh, called Graham versus Connor, which I'm sure you're aware of, mm-hmm. that says officers are re- sometimes required to make split-second decisions. That's true. Sometimes they are, but most of the times they are not. And you can't put yourself in a position where you're making a split-second decision when you yourself have acted poorly in terms of the type of tactics that were involved, which is involved here. They, they did the right thing to open up the door and have the dog available, but the wrong thing was to but shoot without first assessing whether or not there was any danger coming from the kid, from the young man. And that they didn't find out. There was no danger, and we can see it turning out in the video. So to me, this is an outrageous, outrageous shooting uh, that um, the, the officers should be held accountable. And even more so now, I think the department uh, with the chief uh, uh, in his statement should be um, brought up and held accountable himself. Granted, there's a lot of shootings. And I will say this, you know, since George Floyd, we thought that there would be a reduction in the shootings. There hasn't been. Arlen, you may know this. We've been averaging in this country a thousand, couple hundred shootings a year for the last five years. They've been keeping track. Well, you know, they're on track again this year for the same day. So, uh, and blacks are disproportionately shot, killed by the police. And other groups, whites are killed too, but not at the same high rate that African-Americans are. So it's still a danger, and, and there's a lack of respect for African-Americans' lives, which is the most tragic part of it all. Real quick, Wilmer, I'll just make one quick statement. If what this police chief is saying is true, if what they're pushing is true, then actually every person that you come along with, as an officer, you could just shoot them and then check to see if they've got a gun and a weapon and just say, well, I made a split-second de- decision. No, And you can just shoot anybody and everybody that you come across all day long. You stop 10 people, shoot 10 people, and then say, I had to make a split-second decision. I didn't know if they had a gun, uh, a gun or not. Anyway, Wilmer, go ahead. Well, John, we've been talking about this for a number of years, and one of the things that you've been very, very clear and consistent on is, as you just talked about in this case, violating protocol and training. The officers had the cover of the door and the wall, and when you look at this photograph that's taken right before the young man is shot, if he had a weapon, they're standing unprotected, right in the line of fire. This reminds me of, I think it was Tamir Rice, where the officer had the squad car as his cover, came out from behind the cover, exposed himself, or as you talk about, puts himself or herself in harm's way, and then wants to claim, I had to shoot my way out of the threat. Absolutely. That is one of those things that we are always concerned about. Officer creates a confrontation either through tactics or through force, and then they use deadly force, 
when if they had exercised proper tactics, they wouldn't have put themselves in that kind of position where they've had to use deadly force. In this situation, the person was by a door and he had a wall. He really could have done what officers are supposed to do, and that is to look in, pull yourself back uh, you know, behind the, um, the wall and the door and, and, and assess. He didn't do that. He opened that door. He shot. So very poor tactics uh, on his part, and uh, I'm certain that uh, lawyers will take a close look at that. But there's so many things wrong with this. The worst part about it is a young man who's dead who was in his bed sleep, you know, and he, went, and, and, he, and he gets shot and killed before he even had a chance to know what the hell he had done or anything. So that part is pretty tragic. And when you look at the picture um, of this, you can see the the the, the guy, the uh, victim has both of his hands out sideways. He's not pointing anything in any way whatsoever. The other thing is the officer, you know, he had less than a second. You have to announce. He could have said police. He could. Have, he didn't even have any time. He just opened the door and shot the first person he saw. That's obvious. We got about thirty seconds. That's absolutely, and that, that's wrong tactics altogether. And but I wanted to comment upon this other story you guys have been talking about, and that is the sixty shots that they did to this kid, sixty to ninety shots they did to this kid in Akron, Ohio. That is outrageous. And the kid was running, and almost like Garner uh, in the case uh, uh, Garner versus Tennessee. You're not supposed to shoot a guy who's running away, you know, particularly if he doesn't have a weapon or he's firing at you. And they claim that he may have had a weapon, but no weapon has been found. But that's the kind of outrageousness that we see when there's no way you should have shot anybody, shot at someone 90 times, 90 times, and you don't get any fire coming back at you. So it's pretty outrageous. So those are the kind of police tactics we see that we know are fundamentally wrong, but yet police continue to do them and then want to be justified in the kind that they engage in and don't want to be held accountable. And trust me, and I'm sure you know this, as much as that crime scene's been searched, if they haven't found a weapon by now, there was no weapon. I would have been concerned that they had dropped the weapon because I didn't have a case back in Chicago that they dropped the weapon, you know. Yeah. Very famous cases, you know, Bell versus Milwaukee. They dropped the weapon on a kid and claimed that the, the police dropped the weapon to justify that they had, that the kid had a weapon at the time they shot him. We've been talking with John Burris. He's a civil rights attorney out of California. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbach has vowed to support Ukraine even if the starving and frozen voters of Germany erupt in protest. Also, U.S.-inspired sanctions against Russia ensure that Europe will face a winter from hell. Joining us to discuss this and more, we've got Dan Lazar. He's an investigative journalist and author of many books, including America's Undeclared War. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Uh, Thanks for having me. Even if Germans take to the streets over energy prices, Berlin must support Ukraine by maintaining sanctions on Russia. Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbach told a conference in Prague on Wednesday, something tells me at some point, Dan, she ain't going to be the foreign minister anymore. And Olaf Scholz ain't going to be in charge. If that happens, my prediction is the government falls and they're lucky if that's all that happens. Dan Lazar. Well, I agree. I mean, I agree. I think that uh, that um, that that 
that she is engaging in some very uh, brave talk. Uh, you know, she's going to she's going to do everything she can to stand by the um, by the Ukrainians uh, and come hell or high water. And the people will have to put up with it. Uh, but we'll see whether she can uh, she can uh, whether she can she can really make it through. Uh, because, I mean, Germany's heading for a serious crunch. I think the entire global economy is. Um, and uh, and governments are not going to survive. And I think that hers is on the line. Uh, it just strikes me as uh, it's a deadly combination. And also, by the way, the, the war in the Ukraine is not going well. It's going to drag on for a long time. And uh, you can't ask the German people to put up these kinds of sacrifices for, for that long. Dan, a Baerbach's fellow Green Party member, Robert Habeck, said the economy and climate change, he's the economy and climate change minister. He told reporters these, quote unquote, social measures that Baerbach says will be implemented may include subsidies, a changed market structure for energy and a budget that would shift the burden for electricity prices from the citizens as well as price caps. These are some very, very aggressive measures that, A, I think would be difficult to get through the German legislature, but B, the simpler thing, I think, would be to just turn on Nord Stream 2 and relieve the sanctions. I, I totally agree. That the simplest, most logical thing to do is for NATO to acknowledge its mistakes, its, uh, its contribution to, to this ongoing disaster in the Ukraine, to seek some kind of negotiated settlement, uh, to, to end the war, and to restore some measure of normalcy so that Germany and the rest of Europe can begin tackling uh, the global warming problem in a concerted, long-term, long-term fashion. Um, but that's not going to happen. Uh, NATO is committed to a do-or-die effort of the Ukraine. Uh, it's, the, it, it's, it's set on rolling back uh, Russian gains to the, uh, you know, to the pre-2014 borders. Um, and, uh, and Russia is, is equally doomed and de- determined not to allow that to happen. So this, 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 this war will play out for a long time to come. And um, unless either side cracks, I should add, um, and therefore uh, the economic distress will be increasingly aggravated as a consequence. You know, one of the things I think that's come out of this Ukraine war is that a reality that was somewhat hidden, and that is Europe is an imperialist trap. The U.S. has maintained hegemony over Europe with the illusion of democracy. And now that the U.S. is starting to fall, the empire is starting to fall, now, well, I would, I'll put it like this, the U.S. sees itself as falling as it, and it's causing itself to fall because it can't handle the rise of other world powers. But all of that is now revealing that the EU is just an imperialist trap. And I suspect 
fact that at some point, the I'll call it the fall and rise of Europe. Europe's falling right now, but I suspect that the people of Europe, at some point, we're going to, the, the, the ruling class of Europe is going to find out there's more of them than there are of you, and that the people of Europe at some point are going to, sadly, I hate to think about this, push back violently if they deem necessary to turn this thing around away from this imperialist trap. That would be my suspicion, Dan. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely correct. I think things are falling apart in a major way across the board. I mean, in Italy, for example, uh, you know, Georgia Maloney, Giorgia Maloney, the, uh, the leader of the Fratelli d'Italia, the Italian Brotherhood, a neo-fascist party, I mean, is poised to become prime minister sometime in uh, this month. Um, it'll be a it'll be the most dramatic political development in the entire post-war period if Italy reverts essentially <laughs> to the, uh, the Mussolini-esque status quo ante. Uh, and it'll show that the Pax Americana, which was supposed to bring with it uh, prosperity, uh, peace, and democracy, uh, is reaching an end. Uh, I mean, you know, it, with, with, with Gorbachev, uh, poor Mikhail Gorbachev now lying in state, I mean, it's a, it's a good time to sort of think that, you know, that, the, that you've got to be careful for what, for what you wish for. So the U.S. spent 35 years, you know, battling to to overcome the Soviet col- uh, colossus. It finally succeeded in 1989 to 91, um, and the ensuing 40 years have brought a gross overextension of U.S. power, and now a a, a major uh, crisis caused by imperial overstretch. And that's what we're seeing. That's what we're seeing all across the world, from, from Western Europe to the Ukraine, to the, uh, to the Western Pacific, uh, to the Persian Gulf. I mean, American power is grossly overextended. It can, it can no longer deliver the goods. And so therefore, we're now facing the, the final denouement. So as you see what's happening in Italy with Maloney, do you anticipate further types of reactions in other European countries as in terms of far right, like Marine Le Pen gaining traction in France, and then compare that to what's happening in the global south? Because you're not seeing that same, you've already seen that same type of far-right action in the global South, it has failed, and now people there have reacted with electing indigenous leaders and more people-led movements. Hopefully that makes sense. Well, yes, I mean, but like, look, at it. I don't wanna, I don't wanna put a favorable gloss on Georgia Maloney. I mean, she's a, she's a neo-fascist. Uh, and clearly we're, we're moving into a, to an, to an era of, of rampant nationalism. I mean- Yeah, that's my what point. Is the, well, yeah, but 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 you know, but they, but in the in the third world, you know, nationalism may have a certain kind of progressive aspect, but in the in the first world in Europe, it's entirely regressive. Uh, you know, so I saw so a Europe ruled by Georgia Maloney, uh, um, uh, Viktor Orban, uh, Zelensky, etc. You know, it's going to be a it's going to be a Europe that is that that is going farther and farther to the right. 
Um, and one which is which is going to be more unstable rather than less. I mean, they, they, they're, they're, they're trying to achieve some measure of stability. It'll be elusive. It'll just lead to more, more chaos, more instability, more uncertainty, and also more economic decline. That's the important thing. But, but, but Dan, that, that's, that's kind of my point, is that Europe will be going further right, and the United States will be supporting Europe, while the global south is going left, and the United States is doing everything in its power to prevent the left-leaning move in the global south, which is actually championing the rights of the people, where they should be avoiding what's happening in Europe. That, that's, that's what I was trying to get to. Well, let, let me throw some, some, something else out that, that I think is important. When we talk about, right, let, for instance, fascism, people will say, you know, the far right, the extreme right or, you know, extreme nationalism. OK, I'm a person recently who I believe that a form of fascism is the extreme liberalism. It is a form of fascism that, you know, when you say, oh, no, we don't want fascism. But the question is, Viktor Orban versus someone who is so-called left or Green Party or whatever, who's saying, yeah, let's not allow Russians to even play sports. Let's uh, lock up people who, um, you know what I mean? So when you start saying it, it, here's what I'm saying. It's quite possible, and in my opinion, when I look at Viktor Orban, he's the right-winger and he's conservative, and I disagree with his the fundamentals of his policies. However, when I compare him to the people that are running, say, a Liz Truss, I take Orban any day over Truss because, to me, Truss is more of a fascist than Orban. So there are other factors. Anyway, Dan, your thoughts? Well, I, I mean, I agree. I mean, we are, we are, we are living in an incredible— a period of, of deepening confusion. I mean, where where where, where right wingers say seemingly left wing things, and and liberals, you know, say right wing things. I mean, you're right. I mean, I mean, the, the Democrats at this point are probably more hawkish than the Republicans. Mm-hmm. The Democrats are cheering on the CIA and FBI, you know, against the GOP. Uh, you know, Liz Truss is, you know, is, is wants to, you know, wants to what's a global NATO in order to confront uh, China, which is, you know, it's as equally absurd. You know, it's both absurd and dangerous. Um, you know, and uh, and and you know, and and Georgia Maloney rails very eloquently against the, the financial elite. The, the, the big bankers uh, who want to reduce uh, Italian citizens to mere ciphers, et cetera, et cetera. So it's all very confused. But, but that confusion is itself a problem because it's that confusion, which, which is sort of self-feeding. There was the expression of the self-licking ice cream cone. <laughs> I mean, it tends, to, it tends to deepen itself and to extend itself. And out of that confusion, nothing good can come. Uh, you know, so, so I, I just think we're, 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 we're entering into a period of just deepening turmoil, deepening nationalist uh, um, uh, friction um, and, um, and a growing threat of war. And I think that, the, that things are very dangerous. I think, I think the Democrats have had, a, have had a few good weeks. So the Democrats are extremely opt- are, are certainly optimistic about, about November. But I wouldn't count on it. I think that this, 
Democratic Party dawn is going to be, going to be very fleeting. The economy is in big trouble. And, uh, and I think that we're heading into a very dark time. And to your point, the Democrats have had a couple of good weeks. But to your point, it, it's really not sustainable because what they've been able to do has been really superficial and has really done nothing to alleviate the pain and nothing to alleviate the causes of the problems that are impacting the working and middle class people in this country. Oh, yes. And in fact, in fact, all the economic indices are, are pointing downwards. I mean, this, this latest mm-hmm. report on, long, on longevity is devastating. Just devastating. I mean, you know, I mean, we, we always assumed that, you know, that, that, that health would steadily improve. But now due to the, now due to the, um, the inept response to COVID, uh, life expectancy has declined like, like three full years, completely unprecedented, you know, other than in wartime. Um, and even before then, though, it was stagnant while other countries were still forging ahead. Now, America's in very bad shape, and the government is not delivering. Uh, American living standards are plummeting, uh, and Americans know this. They're, they're aware that their society is in very dangerous straits. We've been talking with Dan Lazar. He's an investigative journalist and author of a number of books, including America's Undeclared War. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. In her latest Common Dreams article, Marcy Winograd argues, we cannot call for peace in Ukraine while simultaneously supplying that country with advanced rocket systems and missiles that could lead to a direct war between the U.S. and Russia, the world's most heavily armed nuclear nations. Joining us now to discuss this, we have the author of the story, Marcy Winograd. She's a congressional coordinator for Code Pink. Marcy, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Well, thank you, Garland. Thank you, Wilmer. It's a pleasure to be with you. And to discuss uh, this crisis in Ukraine. Uh, Marcy also says we must tell Congress and the White House there is no military solution, only a diplomatic one that acknowledges the security interest of all stakeholders. You know, Marcy, the other thing I always think is this. Every war in history, even if it's an unconditional surrender, every war in history ends up with a diplomatic solution. So why wait around till the, till, till after lots of people are dead to do the inevitable? Marcy. I agree. Well, first of all, I just want to make it clear. Code Pink is an explicitly anti-war organization. So we opposed uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, as unjustified as a violation of the U.N. Charter. That being said, we also understand the, the provocations leading up to this war. There's always a context to consider. We understand that NATO, which could have dissolved, should have dissolved in 1991 with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, expanded from 12 to 30 countries up to Russia's neck uh, up until the present. We understand that the United States supported a coup of a democratically elected president in Ukraine, and on and on. That being, that being said, we do not support this war. We want to see a ceasefire, and we want both Vladimir Putin 
and President Biden to pick up the phone to talk to each other and to settle this. They could settle this tomorrow if they wanted. You know, you say in your piece, Marcy, that, to, and to your point, they could settle it tomorrow if they wanted, if Ukraine and Russia can negotiate grain exports, prisoner exchanges, and international inspections, they can reach a negotiated settlement. And then we have the report that Russia, Ukraine tentatively agreed on peace deal, but British Prime Minister Boris Johnson arrived in Kiev not long after the talks and told Zelensky not to negotiate. So there's and that's not the first time that we've heard reports that Boris Johnson has injected himself into the process and told Zelensky, now's not the time. Your Western benefactors will not support this. Well, fortunately, Boris Johnson is no longer an active player in this in this crisis. And hopefully saner heads will prevail. Uh, Code Pink along with several other organizations, including World Beyond War, Veterans for Peace, uh, several others, we belong to a coalition called the Peace in Ukraine Coalition. And what we're saying is that we want an immediate ceasefire. You know, you'll hear on both sides of this, uh, you'll hear Ukrainians, you'll hear Russians saying we don't want a ceasefire because they don't want to see territory, whatever. You know what? The fate of the world hangs in the balance. This isn't just about Ukraine and Russia. This involves all of us. It involves the United States, involves all these NATO countries that are funneling arms to continue an endless war in Ukraine, a protracted war that could go on for decades and risk nuclear war between the two nations that we know have the most nuclear weapons in the world. So this is we are we are standing at the precipice and we have to pull back and saner saner minds must prevail and say, look, negotiate. Like you said, there are diplomatic agreements that always resolve these wars. So. So why fight until the last Ukrainian, the last Russian? Let's get to the diplomatic agreement. We have an outline, Minsk too. Let's go back to that. Let's reaffirm that and, and settle this. Because what are we looking at? We're looking at global famine, you know, with this naval blockade and the mining of the harbors and so forth. Uh, we're looking at devastation an exacerbation of our climate crisis. We cannot afford this. This is the existential threat of our time, along with nuclear war, the climate crisis. And we know that each rocket launched, each you know Air Force airplane sent over there, all this ammunition, explosions, and so forth, this is making the climate crisis exponentially worse. We've got to stop this now, not a year from now, not 10 years from now, now. And, you know, Marcy, I think to put this thing in uh, the, the context which you are putting it in, which is a grander context, I look at two things. And I look at Taiwan and Ukraine. And I think the U.S. has stop, got to stop pumping weapons into um, countries on the border of other superpowers. Because here, you know, we were all like, oh, my gosh, Ukraine, are we all going to die in a nuclear holocaust? And then a couple of weeks ago, we look at Taiwan and it seemed even scarier. It seemed like war was on the horizon. And it seems like the United States, for some reason, has decided these confrontations with nuclear power. This is not Afghanistan or Iraq. If this goes bad, it's over for humanity, uh, Marcy. Yes. Well, Garland Wilmer, we know that we are at, we're facing an existential point in history. By all means, United States, Russia, all the NATO countries, they need to join the uh, treaty 
become signatories and ratify the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and end this, this insanity, this arms of, quote, modernization, where you see both the United States, Russia, China escalating the arms race. This is, we're going in the wrong direction. So peace is the answer. War is not the answer. We, we saw how the United States set a very bad precedent in Iraq with this invasion uh, under the fictitious banner of weapons of mass destruction in, in Iraq. I mean, you know, we had hundreds of thousands of people marching all over the world saying, stop this invasion. And yet, as President Bush at the time continued with it. What happened? What was the result in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Vietnam? We're looking at millions of deaths. Do we really wish that on Ukraine? No, we don't. Code Pink does not. Our peace coalition uh, Peace in Ukraine coalition does not wit, wit, wish that for anyone. So let's negotiate. Let's talk about it and let's get NATO uh, to rethink. Certainly the there could be an insurgent group within NATO to rethink support for endless nuclear proliferation. Uh, Marcia, I would agree with you a thousand percent if rational minds were involved in the process and there was really something real, there was something real being fought over. But what seems to be motivating and driving all of this are the interests of the military industrial complex so that Raytheon can sell more missiles, so that Boeing can sell more planes. And, and, and so the interests of the military industrial complex seem to be the controlling interests that are at stake and at play here. Yes, as well as the belief, I think, in uh, world superpowers and global hegemony, uh, in U.S. exceptionalism, in Russian aggression, all of that, you know, undergirds what we're seeing unfold in Ukraine. And it's, it's really criminal that you have military contractors profiting off of death and destruction abroad. You know, the United States was, we had millions of people in the street, in the street, rightfully so, protesting police brutality, you know, at the start of COVID, somewhere, somewhere during the COVID epidemic. And, and yet we are exporting that kind of brutality and have been for many, many years. Uh, at Code Pink, I'm an organizer with Code Pink. I host Code Pink Congress. We have bi-monthly Zooms on foreign policy. We are clear that we do not support war as a resolution to a conflict. We support negotiations, not escalation. And we're calling for a freeze on U.S. arms shipments to Ukraine because we see them, frankly, as a disincentive to talks to negotiations. Because as long as Ukraine can count on all of these advanced weapons and intelligence to target uh, Russians, uh, there is less, much less of an incentive to settle this. And who knows where these weapons are going? I've read reports, CBS News, that's not a radical news outlet, saying that uh, only about 30 to 40 percent of these weapons are actually reaching the front line. So where are they going? Is this uh, an underground black market economy of lethal weapons that we're, we're funding and you know funneling our taxpayer dollars into at least 13.5 billion as we speak probably a lot more so this is something that the US public needs to rethink and we're working on reaching out to the public and having these conversations these are hard conversations because the narrative is that Russia invaded Ukraine and Ukraine is fighting for 
It's uh, for self-determination. Again, we support self-determination. We do not, however, support hostile military alliances on the borders of other countries, mock nuclear games, call them games. Uh, They're horrific. We don't support any of that. We understand that this situation was building for many years. We've been sending weapons to Ukraine for years. As I said, we supported the coup that overthrew a democratically elected president. Uh, We know there was a civil war in eastern Ukraine for several years. 14,000 dead have been reported. So it didn't start on February 24th. But we do oppose the Russian invasion as much as we oppose U.S. funneling weapons all these years to Ukraine. The other part of it is this. Not just the Ukrainians are going to suffer, Russians or anybody else. These sanctions are going to create unthinkable pain. Oh, excuse me, are already creating unthinkable pain for the people of Europe, the people of the global south. So the world is suffering here. We've got about uh, two minutes. Your thoughts on that? Yes. As I said, this is not just a crisis between Ukraine and Russia. This is a global crisis. We're looking at famine in the Middle East, famine in Africa. We know that Ukraine and Russia, together, they are the breadbasket of the world for grain. And if there's a naval blockade, if there's mining of the harbors, if grain cannot flow, what's, what's the end? What's the, uh, what's the outcome? The outcome is that people will starve, you know, in half the world. We cannot. We cannot proceed along this path. We need to negotiate and de-escalate and reach a diplomatic agreement. In the end, we all know that's, what, that's what's going to happen, right? Uh, there is no military solution. As Europe's coming winter from hell, they're fighting over how they're going to be able to heat their homes and run their industries when they're shut off from sanctioned natural gas. But they still don't they they still rather do that than negotiate and look at reasonable solutions. We've got 30 seconds. We need more people out in the street. We are hosting uh, a Peace in Ukraine Week of Action September 12th through the 15th throughout the, throughout the country, throughout the United States. We're asking people to be meeting with their members of the House, with the members of the Senate. We're asking people to be on street corners with signs, cease fire now, negotiate, do not escalate, freeze the weapons shipments. Humanitarian relief, yes. More weapons for an endless war, no. We need people out in the street. We need people vocal and saying enough. This is not the answer. Without a groundswell from below, Raytheon can dictate foreign policy. We can't allow that. And so I'm asking people to join us at codepink.org, peaceinukraine.org, and get out there. We've been talking with Marcy Winograd, Congressional Coordinator for Code Pink. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.S. is looting large amounts of oil from Syria. Also, we discuss how Arab states view the U.S. aggression towards China. Joining us to to discuss this, we have Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. 
According to Asana, the U.S. occupation on Monday brought out 123 tankers loaded with Syrian oil from Al Jazeera fields towards Iraqi lands in a move that reflects its greed in the Syrian resources. That's from Sana News, the Syrian Arab News Agency. Laith Maruth, your thoughts on and, and and let me add this: this is something that we have been discussing literally for months. Laith. Oh yeah, this is ongoing uh, for now almost 10 years, the looting. Remember that uh, before the direct uh, American occupation of uh, northeast Syria, it was ISIS that was looting those uh, oil fields and smuggling them out under the watch of the American supposed anti-terrorism coalition into Turkey. And Turkey was buying those that oil and selling it to the apartheid colony of Israel. This is an ongoing problem. Billions and billions of dollars of resources of the impoverished Syrian people uh, have been looted by the Americans and their various vessels and uh, militias that it controls. And uh, clearly, this will continue until the Syrian military uh, you know, exacts a price and uh, the resistance on the ground expels the Americans and their uh, militias. Uh, you know, look, uh, the United States has been a, a country built on piracy and looting of nations, including, of course, indigenous peoples. Uh, in of the land, but this is a a natural way of accumulation of profit in the Western uh, world since 600 years, and this is, didn't end. The anyone that thinks that colonialism ended uh, in by the World War II is uh, is deluding themselves, and the West will collapse. I tell you, the whole Western economic system will collapse once it ceases to be able to loot the resources of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. You mentioned, Leith, that the oil was going uh, from Syria through Turkey. Is there any way that pressure on Erdogan could bring a stop to this? And if so, where would the pressure on Erdogan have to come from? If you remember when ISIS was, uh, you know, making bringing out these uh, caravans of hundreds of uh, oil trucks through Iraq and Turkey into Turkish territory, it was only stopped when the Russian military force bombed the hell out of them, and this will continue as in such way because. Uh, it came out at the time when ISIS was doing this trade directly that it was the son-in-law of Erdogan that was actually the main uh, uh, businessman that was doing the trade of the ISIS looted oil from from Iraq and Syria, and it is still continues. The major contract uh, right now between the Kurdish uh, death squads, the Kurdish contras that are under the watch of the United States. Uh, it's an Israeli company, and it's running it through Turkey with the help of the brother-in-law of Erdogan. A price must be paid for all of this. Syria must uh, ret- you know, regain control of its uh, oil fields. Otherwise, you know, it's a shameless, shameless uh, scam of looting people's uh, resources until anybody enforces the law on them.
You know, staying in that area, Press TV, and I've read this uh, a lot, U- has an article, UK teen Shimima Begum's case shows Muslim lives disposable to Western intelligence ac- uh, agencies academic. The latest report about British teenager Shamima Be- Begum smuggled by a Canadian spy to Syria in 2015 with her two friends to join the Daesh uh, ISIS uh, terrorist group shows how disposable disposable Muslim lives are to Western intelligence agency. Here's the thing about it. We see the Western intelligence agency, the U.S. empire, literally smuggling women uh, from England into ISIS to be ISIS brides, to be murdered, abused, raped, whatever the case may be, and smuggling members of ISIS and covering up. Covering. If you look at this story, the media had it in Great Britain and covered it up. It's a mess. Your thoughts, Leith? Um, and, and remember, these girls, they were 16 and 15 year olds. There are three of them. This is a clear example of the Western intelligence agencies trafficking children. It's not only smuggling people, it's trafficking children into sexual slavery for their death squads on the fields, the killing fields of Syria and Iraq. And this is the, the height of, of, of uh, you know, filth in humanity. Look, there's the prime minister of Canada today, Justin Trudeau, came out defending CSIS, the Canadian intelligence agency, and standing by them. Look, the, the, the intelligence forces of, of, uh, of from Canada through the Great Lakes into sl- sexual slavery in the Americas. There is almost 3,000 indigenous women and girls that have disappeared in the last 10 years. And uh, this is not only related to the children of Muslim communities in the West that have been smuggled have been trafficked into sexual slavery, into the death squads. This is a actual way, a day-to-day activity of the intelligence forces of the West. They are behind all child trafficking, not only began. The indigenous women, the black women, the poor women of all the world are being smuggled, are being trafficked, by these intelligence forces, that's just like they are behind all the drug trade in the world. That's why they're behind the cocaine, the opium, the, the, the heroin in the world. This is why they fought the Taliban that was burning the fields of opium in Afghanistan so they can smuggle it for 30 years nonstop over airlines of the American military force into into the ghettos of the poor peoples of the Americas. One of the things that's uh, interesting about this is initially when the story broke, it was reported as though Ms. Uh, Begum and others were doing this under their own will. And when you read the story, it talks about the UK government depriving Shamima Begum of her citizenship. So this is as though now the UK government wants to punish her for being a victim of trafficking and making this out in the context of a citizenship issue instead of looking at this as, in reality, she's a victim. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, look, the, the bombings that happened in the United Kingdom, the uh, Birmingham uh, bombings that happened, they were the people that were responsible for it were actually uh, trained by the MI5 and MI6 to invade Libya. And then they came back and they were the intelligence forces, MI5 and MI6, pushed them to do this so they can have a reason to round up Muslims, to to target their mosques, to target their civil associations and, and put surveillance on them and monitor them and make sure that the large Arab and Muslim populations in the West who should have representation politically are isolated and denigrated and unable to have any representation. Any and all uh, terrorist attacks that happen on Western territories are actually uh, uh, organized and toasted and pushed through by the intelligence forces of the West specifically to maintain the ability to create hate within the white majority of those populations that allows these countries, Canada, the United States, England, and so forth, to justify mass genocide in Afghanistan, mass genocide in in Iraq, in Palestine, in Syria. This is a, a complicated and clear also, very clear, uh, uh, a conspiracy from bringing the death squads to the field, from from uh, you know, as you mentioned here, from uh, bringing these children to become sexual slaves to their death squads that they are throwing on us. It's all one big piece, and people are sick of it, and we are sick of the the 600 years of domination by Western white supremacy, and it's all going to come to an end. And when you uh, look at this, I mean, these things, uh, all these things we're doing together, uh, uh, go together. And, and the hypocrisy of claiming rules-based order when, in fact, the U.S. is illegally occupying S- Syria right now, illegally occupying Syria, stealing their resources, uh, uh, trafficking child sex slaves to Syria. You know, all this at the same time, it is it just shows a decadence and a hypocrisy that's almost unfathomable. Uh, We've got a minute and a half. Well, it's only it's only possible because of the uh, the rag of journalism, the the propaganda machine that continues to spin out hate against the peoples of the world. And, uh, you know, hides any truth that comes out like this. This story of, uh, of this child has been on the record, actually, for more than uh, five years. Everybody knew this. This is finally being reported now. But uh, Turkish media and Syrian media, and Turkish media is not uh, supportive of Syria, have already put the videos of the CSIS agent that, uh, and, and his travels with these children into Syria. It's not a, a new story. It is the rag uh, publications in the West that have no respect for themselves. This whole uh, hundreds of thousands of people that call themselves journalists and they are just propagandists and people are sick of that. And this is thankfully for... Uh, uh, you know, alternative media that is out there like Sputnik that we can now probably hear. People can hear it in the streets of Washington, D.C. and New York. We've been talking with Leith Maruth, 
He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The new Global Fragility Act legislation appears to be a tool for the imperial designs of the U.S. empire, and Haiti has been chosen as the first victim for this predatory statute. Joining us now, we have Dr. Jamima Pierre. Dr. Pierre is an associate professor of Black Studies and Anthropology at the University of California at Los Angeles. She's also a member of the Black Alliance for Peace and an editor of the Black Agenda Review segment of the Black Agenda Report. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Oh, always, always a pleasure. The Global Fragility Act, Washington's new tool for controlling an indomitable Haiti. This can be found at a great uh, a great website, the Orinoco Tribune. Travis Ross writes, with Russia and China increasingly assertive and influential worldwide, Washington recently rolled out its gambit to maintain global hegemony and gather former colonies and neo-colonies under its wing, the Global Fragility Act. The U.S. government has selected Haiti to be the first GFA partner in the Western Hemisphere. Dr. Pierre, partner in the Western Hemisphere. uh, 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 Haiti's finally going to be a partner. They've been victims of the United States for centuries. Hmm. Maybe I'm suspect of this word partner, Dr. Pierre. Uh, You should be. Uh, It should have said they've chosen Haiti because that's the full, that's the state that they, that's their full colony at this point. Um, They've, they completely control Haiti. Um, They, they're, you know, they install their puppet. They keep uh, the puppet is controlled. They they keep the masses under the guns of armed young people. Um, they bring the guns into the country. They they know about the assassination. They're I, I, as far as I'm concerned, they're behind the assassination. So Haiti is basically the training ground for um, the next phase of U.S. imperialism. And it is really interesting in the article that it says that. Haiti is the first bite of the apple, right? One of the uh, one of these leaders that says, you know, that's that's the place where they carry out their experiments before they try them on other places. And we know this. Um, uh, I don't know if your listeners remember that after the earthquake, I think uh, in the south of Haiti a couple of years ago, what they did was bring in USAID full force. And so USAID is, of course, part of the Department of Defense. You know, they say that they're NGOs. You know, they fund nonprofit things, but they're there to control Haiti. So, you know, Haiti's under complete control. The core group, um, USAID, um, Haiti has no government because the U.S. is behind the complete destruction of the the Haitian state. And so, yes, of course, then Haiti becomes this open training ground so that they can try it on Haiti first and then we'll try it on other people. And the other people are Libya, Mozambique, Papua New Guinea, Benin, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, Guinea, and Togo, a number of those countries are countries that the United States has intervened, has gone in, overthrown their governments, and been the cause of disruption uh, as opposed to being a solution. And they say that their outline for this GFA is peace building, stabilize conflict-affected areas, and prevent violence and fragility. But as in Haiti, 
The United States is the source of the conflict. The United States is at the crux of violence. And the United States is fomenting fragility. That, that is absolutely correct. In the sense of creating havoc. I mean, Libya is the perfect example where you have NATO attack Libya, um, bomb the the bomb the, the the heck the heck out of the people, steal their gold, and then bring it back to, to to the U.S. country, and then destroy the state. And so, of course, part of it, you know, what's interesting about this article is also points out the reality that um, that the U.S. The, both parties, the Republicans and Democrats, remember this This is a, a Global Fragility Act was passed by Trump and fully embraced by Biden and also run by, you know, the directors of the National Endowment for Democracy, you know, the regime change organization. And so the, the whole point of this is actually to show you how the U.S. plans to work in the face of the fact that now that China and Russia are not allowing them to run roughshod over the UN Security Council. And so this is the way of using these, these poor states who are the victims of US imperialism to then turn around and use them as the way um, to, 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 to block, supposedly block Russia and China's advance. And I have to say, Haiti is one of the few countries that actually recognized Taiwan under the puppet go government on uh, Jovenel Moise, who, who actually took a trip to Taiwan and recognized Taiwan as um, the as as an independent state. And so it's it, you know, to me, this 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 really gives the the concrete lie. Uh, opens up the, the farce of the so-called rules-based international order because what it is is what it tells us is that if the rules are not made by us. That's the U.S. and their, you know, and their, uh, and their European peons. If the rules are not made by them, then no one should. There should not be any rules, or we should create different rules. It's like taking your ball, you know, you know, doting the ball during a soccer game, and if if you don't if you don't win, you take your ball and you walk away. And that's exactly what the U.S. is doing. And then using these poor countries that they've completely destabilized as a way to 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 do that. You know, Dr. Pierre, one of the things I find uh, of consequence is when I look here, it says the funding is managed by the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, and its parent, uh, U.S. State Department. The USAID is used for um, regime change operations and imperial designs around the world. It seems to me that that is, you know, a, a giveaway that this has nothing to do with helping any other countries. Dr. Pierre. Well, that's that's correct. And USAID is the, the imperialist arm, you know, Samantha and then Samantha Power, warmonger, who actually should be at The Hague, all of them, you know, her along with Henry Kissinger, Victoria, Victoria Newland and so on and so forth, Madeleine Albright, because, you know, Samantha Power is a war hawk that's given this job. And we know she's, you know, from the State Department. We and her being in charge of USAID also tells you exactly what USAID stands for. And so it's really it's really um, it's really um, uh, sad to see because, you know, the U.S. has always and I and I think I've said this before on your show, the U.S. has always wanted a military base in Haiti. And so so that control will be there, which is why they, they ended up with Guantanamo Bay, because they couldn't get this island that they want off the, the northern part of Haiti because they wanted a military base. They've been wanting this military base since the 1800s. And so now that they've under the guise of the U.N., they've completely controlled the country, destabilized the country, destroyed, destroyed the Haitian state. Now they can. You know, it's the same conversation around like responsibility to protect, right? That that's what they used to go into Libya, right? So this idea that there's so much violence in Haiti, Haiti needs aid. We're gonna go in there and use the guise of aid for military needs. But there are two things. There are other other things going on. Is the reality that 
there's gold and oil in Haiti, right? So it's about taking over those resources. And that's what people don't, you know, people need to realize. It's the resource, it's both the military base, but also the mineral resources that Haiti has that, that the U.S. wants to have its, its hands on. And so it will use, it will use, you know, the way that they use, you know, they're, they're fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian. They're going to try and control the world to the last Haitian, the last Libyan, and so on. And you, you are, this article was talking about the uh, National Endowment for Democracy, and I think it's always important to mention Karen Bass, who's running to be the mayor of Los Angeles, is on the board of directors of the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, but there's a, there was another article attached to this Orinoco Tribune piece, Haiti, Beware of Washington's Trap. And they talk about the organization of American states and the role that the OAS plays in all of this. If you could just elaborate a little bit on the role that the, as they say, the United States uses its puppet, the Organization of American States, to continue the destabilization of Haiti. Definitely. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I wrote an article a while back called the OAS the Minist or the Ministry of Colonies, which is what Castro, Fidel Castro called the OAS, which was set up as a way to actually go against you know, the, the Cuban revolution, but also for, for Washington to control the, the hemisphere. And the Organization of American States, especially under Luis Amagro, who's this rabid right-wing uh, director, um, you know, it has been very, very explicit um, in its actions in Haiti. Um, it helped, dis you know, it helped um, create two fake elections, you know, it, 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 it changed the terms of the election Change the result in 2011 that brought us this PHTK, the puppet right-wing government of Michel Martelly, and then it changed the results again in 2015, where it allowed you know um, all kinds of irregularities to go on, and then affirmed these supposed elections in 2015 that brought Jovenel Moïse into power, despite protests from people. So the Haitians have been protesting the OAS, the OAS, the core group, the United Nations um, um, stabilized so-called so stabilizing group in Haiti. The Haitians have been protesting these groups for a long time. And so I do think there's a way that these puppet, you know, these organizations that are supposedly um, international organizations are completely run by the U.S., including the U.N., which is not a democratic institution. I also want people to remember that you cannot have a democratic institution when you have five members that are permanent uh, and they're the Security Council that make all the decisions. And so now that the U.N. is not working to the U.S.'s bidding in the way that it wants it to, um, then the U.S. is going to, you know, create something different. And I ha also have to say, you know, I've been very upset at the the U.N. Security Council because they're they're over and over again they keep renewing the mandate uh, of this occupation in Haiti. And I hope this time Russia and China will stop and think twice before you know they go on with this mandate that's coming up, um, the renewal that's coming up in uh, in October. Well, this article brings up another interesting point, and that is. Who could legitimately negotiate into this GFA on behalf of Haiti simply because the current president, Ariel Henry, um, is not um, he was never elected. I mean, he's kind of just appointed by the U.S. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the, exactly the point. Right. Haiti is a colony. Right. And so the truth is there is no Haitian state. Haiti is a colony of the U.S., which is why the U.S. can say we're going to start with Haiti because they are Haiti is under complete control. They, they couldn't start elsewhere um, because, 
you know, they don't have the full control yet. You know, they could start with Ghana, which is, a you know, this groveling puppet government um, that's there, that's allowing the U.S. bases there. But they have to start with Haiti because they have Haiti under complete control. And so that's where we have to, to, to think about. And, and the truth is, you know, they're going to try. Haiti will remain unruly. Um, they cannot control Haiti. And with more guns that they're bringing into the country, they might be shocked if they try, uh, uh, you know, uh, some kind of military intervention. They might get a brutal response. Right. Remember, the Haitian Revolution came out of nowhere to 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 the white rulers back in 18 um, in 1791. So I hope they're you know, they think Haiti's easy, but Haiti's not as easy as they think um, it will be for them. And we have just about a minute and a half. So where does Haiti fit into this geopolitical framework? Because they talk about one of the major focuses here is countering Chinese and Russian influence. Right. Well, I mean, the first thing is that they got Jovenel Moise to recognize Taiwan over China. Right. And so they're going to keep pushing that. They're going to keep that recognition of, of Taiwan. Ariel Henry is a puppet. They're going to try their best. You know, what they're trying to do is basically get Ariel Henry to run illegitimate elections so that it looks like Haiti has uh, an elected government. And the OAS will play a big role, so will the National Endowment for Democracy. So that's what they're planning. Um, I'm not sure it will work, but you know, at this point, is, is, there's no Haiti for them to, to work with. And they will, and they will try and create, create the situation that, that seems like Haiti's um, making its own decisions. And I think you know, for, it will be for a while, it will be a while before um, China, China has a, a has a hold in Haiti until the Haitians revolt and push out these these outsiders, these Westerners. Um, Haiti will still be under the control, and it will be very difficult for China to actually come in and help the way that it's offered. We've been talking with Dr. Jamima Pierre. Dr. Pierre is an associate professor of Black Studies and Anthropology at the University of California at Los Angeles. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Far-right and imperial forces appear to be working to disrupt the Chilean vote for constitutional change. Also, Colombia has named their ambassador to Venezuela as the two nations work to repair relations. Joining us now to discuss this story, we have Dan Kavalik. He's a lawyer. He's a professor and author of many books. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you so much for having me. Kenny Stansel in Common Dreams writes, Fears are growing that a new progressive constitution drafted by a democratically elected body of citizens may not be approved by Chilean voters this week as right-wing forces flood the country with misinformation. What do we need to know? First of all, Dan, what do we need to know about the uh, Chilean constitution? A little bit of background on that and the changes and then what's happening with uh, miscreant activity that appear to be trying to uh, mess with democracy. Yes. Yeah, so this we have to understand uh, that the current uh, constitution that the Chileans have been living under for years is the constitution that was put in place by the dictatorship of General Augusto Pinochet. And so um, I think it was a year or two ago, uh, there was a referendum finally in which voters agreed to get rid of that constitution 
to develop an, another one through a, a na nationwide constitutional assembly, and that's been done. So there is a new constitution that's been drafted, but now there's going to be a referendum on whether to approve this new uh, post-Pinochet um, constitution. And obviously it's going to be a much more progressive constitution than the one they have. Uh, it's going to uh, do a lot more to protect workers' rights and protect people's rights to food and water and housing. And so, yeah, there are obviously uh, members of the ruling class in Chile who are still, by the way, loyal to the Pinochet dictatorship who are trying to derail this. And of course, the U.S. wants to derail it as well, because the whole reason Pinochet was put in place in lieu of President Salvador Allende in 1973 was to for the first time in the first country in the world to establish neoliberal economic policies, which the world has largely lived under since then. And uh, this new constitution would push back against that. And so, you know, the regressive forces in Chile and the world are trying to prevent uh, the new constitution from being approved, which would mean that the old constitution would, would remain in place, at least for a time. So to that point, the Common Dreams title, as Garland read, Far Right Floods Chile with Misinformation Ahead of Vote on New Constitution. And in today, in the or yesterday in the Washington Post, Chile should send its proposed constitution back for a rewrite. Lithium is a key input in batteries that runs millions of laptops in the United States and around the world. Chile sits atop the largest lithium reserves, that's reason enough to pay attention to Chile's impending referendum on a proposed new constitution. Nothing about the people, nothing about the economy in Chile, nothing about Chile being able to control their own resources. This is the perfect example of what, of what, um, what Common Dreams was reporting on the same day. Yeah, I mean... Lithium is now becoming one of the key resources around the world. In fact, we know that uh, Evo Morales in Bolivia was overthrown in 2019, largely because of Western concerns about controlling Bolivia's lithium reserves. We had about a month ago the head of uh, U.S. Southcom talking about the importance of the U.S. continuing to control Latin America's lithium reserves, because as you say, lithium uh, now is is a is a major resource for things like electric cars, for lithium batteries, for computers, for cell phones, and so whoever controls that uh, will, you know, largely control the future. So. Um, it's not surprising that there's interference in Chile like there was in Bolivia to make sure, uh, frankly, that the Chilean people themselves are not going to be controlling their own lithium supplies. 
And, and, you know, there's a lot in this article that really points to the Washington Post being the mouthpiece for the empire. They say the origins of the upcoming referendum lie in a more recent upheaval, the wave of often violent protests against inequality that swept Chile in, in 2019. No, actually, in 2019, what swept Chile was a, a, uh, a U.S.-sponsored uh, coup. They leave that out. And they uh, at the end, they say this suggests both that the constitutional approval is in doubt and encouragingly that Chile's political center is reasserting itself. Well, why would that be encouraging? Isn't don't they believe in independence? Shouldn't Chile's people pick what they want? So at any rate, your thoughts on that, Dan? Of course, they do not believe in independence. They believe in everything <laughs> but independence. Right. I mean. Uh, again, the Monroe Doctrine is still very much in force. Uh, this idea that the U.S. has really sole influence and dominion over the Western Hemisphere is still – that is still the doctrine that the U.S. abides by and that governs its foreign policy in this region. Uh, you know, For so long, uh, the Monroe Doctrine has been summed up by the U.S. referring to Latin America as its backyard. Now, of course – I guess Biden being a bit woker than than former <laughs> presidents now calls it the front yard. So I guess maybe the flowers get watered once in a while or something and the, the, the lawn is mowed. But the idea is still the same. And that is that, uh, you know, the U.S. has the house uh, and uh, Latin America has the yard that the U.S. Uh, maintains uh, control over. Well, and with this other story in Orinoco Tribune, Maybe some of the landscape is about to be remodeled because Ambassador Placencia delivers his credentials to Colombian authorities. So the Venezuelan ambassador to Colombia has presented his credentials. How significant is that, Dan Cavalli? Well, it's very significant. I mean, uh, this is the first, you know, kind of uh, round of, of acts that Gustavo Petra, the new president of Colombia, is carrying forward to try to unify Latin America in the way that Bolivar, Simon Bolivar, wanted to do. Uh, when Petro took office, uh, Colombia did not have diplomatic relationships with Cuba, Venezuela, or Nicaragua, and, and Petro's quickly turned that around, recognized all three countries, and, and they're now exchanging ambassadors. This is huge. And of course, Venezuela, the Venezuela-Colombian re relationship is the most significant because they share a long border. There's been a lot of tensions on that bar border. There have been incursions by the Colombian military and paramilitaries into Venezuela. Uh, you might remember the standoff on the bridge. I believe that was in 2019 uh, when the U.S., tried to send a little bit of aid across this bridge in order to really uh, try to embarrass Maduro and try to create some sort of provocation that would lead possibly to a coup against Maduro. So this is uh, this relationship is an important one. It's been very bad for a long time, and Petro's trying to improve that. The other thing is he recently told the um, uh, Colombian Airlines – uh, to get ready to start preparing to start flying to Venezuela again, which is amazing. I mean, again, that is a great thing. It's incredible that these two countries that are next door to each other, you could not fly directly between those two countries. And again, Petro is trying to change that.
You know, something else I want to ask you about regarding Venezuela, and that is I'm reading the other day that Venezuela's uh, first quarter, um, the economy grew 17 percent and that it is um, the fastest growing economy in South America. So here's my question. The last few years, the U.S. has a sanctioned Venezuela's economy out of existence and then said, Maduro's terrible. Look at their economy. So I'm wondering now that it's growing so much faster than ours, or is it going to change to Maduro's wonderful? He's awesome. He's a brilliant economist. Why? Look at the results, Dan. Yeah, I don't think they're going to go that <laughs> far. But, but what I do think is they may end up having to to realize to eat some crow and to formally recognize him again as the president, right? Because they had ne- recognized this Juan Guaido guy as the president. Uh, Trump had done that in 2019. The U.S. still officially we- recognizes Guaido, even though he doesn't hold any office in Venezuela. I think that, that they're going to have to sheepishly uh, reverse course on that and at some point recognize Maduro, exchange ambassadors again, and we've already seen, of course, earlier this year, missions being sent from the U.S. to Venezuela to talk to Maduro about getting oil, about exchanging prisoners. Um, so, yeah, they're not going to go so far as to applaud Maduro, but they're going to have to deal with him as the just and legitimate leader of that country. And to that point, Dan, are the negotiations or the dialogues that are taking place focusing on or is is are the venezuelan negotiators saying well look it's very simple if you just relieve us of these sanctions and you give us our goal back we can make this all work otherwise why are you guys here yes well that is the case i mean i think venezuela will drive a hard bargain and they really should because yes the u.s has done things to venezuela that have devastated that country uh, that it, that has killed thousands of people through preventing them from getting food, medicine. I mean, the other thing is the U.S. continues to control uh, Venezuela's oil company, uh, Citco, in the U.S., which had been Venezuela's single largest single source of revenue. So query whether Venezuela will also d- demand that back. So I'm certain that Venezuela will say, hey, you know, you're going to have to treat us as an equal and with respect um, and undo some of these things uh, before you're going to get what you want from us. And obviously that that would be the correct course of action for them to take. We've been talking with Dan Kavalik. He's a writer. He's an author, a, pro- uh, a professor and a lawyer and a friend of the show. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Margaret Kimberly, in her latest Black Agenda Report article, argues that the administration's neoliberal tendencies ensure that the student loan relief could not truly address the economic problem faced by many people of color today. 
Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Margaret Kimberly. She's editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of Presidential Black America and the Presidents. Margaret, welcome back to the Critical Hour. Thanks. It's good to be back. Margaret starts off by saying, capitalist rule dictates that millions of Americans live in debt peonage. It was inevitable that Biden's student loan debt relief would be a farcical half measure. And there is a graph showing um, the difference between um, white Americans, black, Hispanic, Asian when it comes to student uh, student loan debt. Margaret, your thoughts. Yeah, uh, I thought the graph was important to show how black people are uh, disproportionately impacted by this crisis of $1.7 trillion in student loan debt. Uh, We are uh, people who appreciate and respect education, but we do not have the resources, the family wealth to help pay for college. As a consequence, black students are very often incurring debt from uh, from the, their first day in their uh, freshman year. So we are um, uh, impacted worse than any other group. But I, I just wanted to point out that this um, debt relief or whatever Biden's trying to call it is really an insult. $10,000. First, you have to earn less than $125,000. And there are people with higher incomes, by the way, who are severely burdened by student loan debt. But you have to make less than that. You only get 10000 If you got a Pell Grant, it's, uh, it's uh, 20000 whole dollars. This will help some people, but it doesn't do anything. It doesn't put a dent in this problem. And uh, but that is by design, uh, as we've mentioned many times, Biden told rich people nothing will fundamentally change. And uh, the U.S. oligarchic class is committed to keeping people in a state of precarity uh, with uh, keeping the average working person in um, a state of uh, shock and awe all the time. So, no, they don't want uh, the child tax credit to come back. No, they don't want Build Back Better to be enacted. No, they don't want the minimum wage to go up. And they certainly don't want what we really should have, which is to forgive all of it. Margaret, I'm very glad that you mentioned the wealth disparity because this becomes just an incredibly vicious cycle. We know that access to education is one of the avenues that can help lift people out of poverty. But we also know that there is an incredible wealth gap in this country that education and access to education can help to minimize. But when you load student debt on top of that, it makes that problem, it exacerbates uh, that situation. It's also interesting to me to listen to some of the argument that Joe Biden's relieving this student debt is going to increase the infl- it's going to increase inflationary pressures as though when you get your student debt relieved, you're going to run out and buy whatever, as, as opposed to not understanding the difference between class and where people in, in different class stratas in this country spend their money. Yes, it is. You're, you're right. It's, it's just ridiculous. It's, it, you know, we're not talking about 
people who are going to, they're going to go out and buy a Ferrari? I don't think so. Or, you know, buy a car at all, maybe pay off their car note faster. Uh, but that would probably be about it. But these inflationary pressures, nobody talks about uh, the inflationary pressures caused by corporations, caused by the oil companies, all these people who are making life miserable, uh, they are never mentioned when it comes to the fear of inflation. It's always doing something for the people. That is, uh, um, uh, we're always told there's something dangerous uh, about that. And the student loan debt problem is so bad that people have to seriously question whether it is worth it to go to college. Um, and I guess the model of going away to school and, you know, uh, room and board and so forth, maybe that's something that can be modified. But, um, you know, this debt, it just, it, um, uh, what is the purpose of going to college? So you can be better off. Well, you can't be better off if you uh, have these huge amounts of debt. And I know people who are quote unquote successful, they're attorneys or some, they're in some job which is supposed to give them a comfortable life and their incomes would give them a comfortable life, but they can't have that if they're in debt for, uh, for the rest of their lives. So this is definitely a, um, a class issue and it's a political issue. And also we have to say Biden lied. When he ran, he said, he didn't say, you know, only 10,000 and 20. He said relieve debt for uh, people making less than that, who went to public schools, and he added HBCUs to that. So the final proposal is, once again, what a surprise, nothing like what he promised. And this is really insidious because they make these promises. They know what people need. They know what people want. But um, uh, the people that they are beholden to do not want that to happen. Margaret, one of the thing, other things you bring up is the fact that it's, as we say, means tested. If you make $125,000 or more, then you, you can't get the relief. But listen to this. The PPP loans, uh, uh, Payroll Protection Act loan, Paycheck Protection Program loans um, that were given out during COVID. Uh, Jared Kushner is worth $800 million. He received a $3 million loan. It was forgiven. Khloe Kardashian, she's worth $60 million, $1.245 million loan, forgiven. Reese Witherspoon's worth $400 million, $975,000 loan, forgiven. Kanye West is now literally a billionaire. He received $2.3 million in loans, forgiven. So it seems that means testing is only for the working class, the working poor, the middle class. When it comes to the, to, to the, to the rich, there's no mean test, means testing there, Margaret. Well, and, and let me add one more thing, Garland. Margaret, before you respond, what about the zero interest bank loans that the, that the Fed was, was facilitating for corporations? And what about under the Obama administration bailing out the banks that were too big to fail? Yeah, you you, <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth. I, my argument is if you can bail out the banks, you can bail out anybody. And we're still bailing out the banks. It didn't end in uh, during the 2008 right. crisis. Trillions of dollars in public money uh, have gone to, uh, to keep uh, the banks afloat. And, uh, and let's say you can defend that. Well, surely you can defend uh, helping uh, working people who certainly play a role in keeping the economy afloat. But this just tells us that um, they're very clear that the state 
is um, acting in um, uh, on behalf of the 1%, acting on behalf of the ruling class and not on behalf of anybody else. If there's enough complaining, you may get a, a few crumbs. And uh, this is just uh, uh, the latest uh, bit of crumbs on the menu. Margaret, talk about Joe Biden's role in creating a lot of the conditions that we find ourselves in now. You talk about in 2005, he and 17 other Democrats joined Republicans in voting for the Bankruptcy Act. What, what role or what impact did that have on this process? Well, this uh, bankruptcy bill in 2005 basically made it much more difficult for anybody to file bankruptcy for any reason. But um, uh, Biden was one of the leaders, and and lest we forget, he is from Delaware, uh, the state um, where uh, the consumer credit industry is king, where um, they give uh, big campaign contributions, and of course they would to the senior senator from uh, from Delaware. Anyway, one of the provisions of this bankruptcy act is that it made it almost impossible to discharge student loan debt in bankruptcy. So no matter what your circumstances, uh, you're stuck with this debt forever. You may get sick, you may lose your job, all of these things that uh, uh, ordinarily would have allowed you to discharge uh, the debt or some portion of it, it's, it's now impossible to do. And uh, but this tells you how the system really works. You know, Biden is a company guy. That's uh, how he got to be vice president and then got to be uh, uh, president. He was always one of the more conservative Democrats. And this is just one of the ways in which he showed that. So in 2005, of course, George W. Bush is president. But he and uh, some other Democrats joined with Republicans to make this bankruptcy bill a reality. So he, uh, President Biden, is acting just like uh, Senator Biden always did. Margaret, another thing you bring up is the disappointing actions of the so-called progressives um, that you would expect to do something other than just tweet like you normally they're going to tweet. Wouldn't it be great if we had health care for all? Don't you know? You know, but but. You know, they don't like find a way to actually stand up in the, in, the, in, the, in the halls of Congress and say the same types of things. Ayanna Presley said President Joe Biden just canceled student debt. That's not exactly 100 uh, percent true there, Margaret. Your thoughts? It's not true at all. I mean, that's <laughs> a lie. I, and I, I said I think I responded on Twitter. I was like, did a did an unsupervised intern write this or. But we know what happens. The black political class. Their job is to uphold these Democrats, no matter how terrible they are. And when you get uh, someone like uh, Congresswoman Presley, who is, you know, the, the squad, or as I call them, the fraud squad, um, for uh, it's their job to give uh, Biden cover at moments like this. And not just to say that this is an adequate measure, but to go even further and claim that he canceled student debt when he did nothing of the sort. So um, it, it is disappointing, but it's a lesson that um, uh, that's what we can count on from these people, Congressional Black Caucus, progressive, progressives in the Congressional Black Caucus, they all do the same. They do as they're told, and um, uh, she and other members are, are quite disgracefully didn't just defend this, but lied about what it meant. 
following on that, one of the things, oh, Margaret, one of the things that I and I could I could very well be misunderstanding the role that the Congressional Black Caucus is supposed to play. But one of the things that I find quite troubling is I rarely, if ever, hear them speak as a body. I don't see Ayanna Presley standing before a microphone with the members of the Black Caucus standing behind her saying, as a body, this is what we are demanding. A- am I missing Am I misinterpreting their their objective or are they just not doing their job? Well, uh, you know, you when you say that, you're I think you're remembering past decades when that is what the, there was a time when that's what what the, the Black Caucus did. They were known as the conscience of the Congress and they did move as a group and they did act as a group. But that's before big money uh, really began to impact uh, politics. And now if you look on their Twitter page, they don't even tweet. I mean, you would think uh, that the Congressional Black Caucus would tweet a lot, but they don't. If you go on their website, sometimes they go months without posting anything. They don't even go through the motions. They are telling you what, who they are and what they do. Actually, they do very little except uh, uh, defend Democrats when they're in office and silence themselves and not represent their constituents. Most of them have, uh, that's how they get elected. Most, they come from districts that are uh, majority black. They don't represent their con, uh, constituents in this and other ways. So they are silent. And um, they, you know, act as if they are some kind of kingmaker at uh, the appropriate moment. But they're errand boys and errand girls for the oligarchic class. Uh, and for the Democratic Party wing of that class. Oh, well, I, I do think they celebrated a lot when a black man was named in charge of AFRICOM. I think they were really happy about that, Margaret. So you, you got to give them some credit. Well, it's, well, but, <laughs> but you, you're right. It's about the, the, you know, the new AFRICOM commander or uh, Austin being the secretary of defense, the secretary of killing people around the world. Let's face it. That's what it is, right? Yep. Um, so that it's something that's meaningless. Uh, well, or meaningful, but in a bad way, you know, the black face in the high place, whatever that <laughs> high place happens to be, but nothing that helps the people. And, you, and you're right. They'll go on Twitter and, and say it's so insulting. It's like, wouldn't it be nice if we had health care? Wouldn't it be nice if we and I always respond, you know, wouldn't it be nice if you were in Congress? Because maybe you could help us <laughs> with that. But um but that's what they do. They are figureheads. And it's uh, uh, really quite uh, shameful and uh, damaging to the public. Margaret Kimberly is the editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report. That's a great, great website out. Check it out. A great website. Check it out regularly. She's also author of a book, Presidential Black America and the Presidents. You have been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out. 